looking at the first five verses this morning, Luke chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 1 through 5, and uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, find the story of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Sabbath, of Jesus being the Lord over the Sabbath, and what that looks like and what that means. So I'm going to ask if you're physically able to do so in the honor of reading of God's Word. Turn, uh, stand with me to Luke chapter, as we read Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. And I pray that you and I would hear the Word of the Lord that's given to you and I this morning. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not read this that David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who with him, which, which is not lawful to eat, but is only for the priests. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Father, as we take a look at our text, as we take a look at this time together, may it be a blessed time, may it be a, a time of, of reasoning together from Scripture and looking at what your Word has to say. We give, pray for guidance and direction in all things, for your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I read a story um, not that long ago from a book. Uh, I, I don't read this author very much, but there was a, there's a book I, I do occasionally enjoy uh, reading uh, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, uh, a book called Grace Awakening. And in the book called Grace Awakening, he talks about a story, relates a story of a, of a young Christian man uh, who is married and they uh, decided to go and attend a, a, a private Christian uh, college. And in this private Christian college, this, uh, they had some very strict rules about um, doing anything on Sunday, um, which, is, which was their prerogative and still is, if, if that's what they want to do. However, what makes this young man so very interesting and unique, uh, and if you've read the book, you'll know what I'm talking about, he, uh, he happens to find his wife uh, there in their house um, washing out some articles of, of clothing. I'm not sure what it was, but some articles of clothing and then hanging them up. And so, instead of confronting his wife, however, he decides that he goes and he turns her in to the administration for breaking their rules about the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine their household was very happy. Um, but it does go to show that um, while that young couple, and I'm sure in his zeal for following the rules, I'm sure he did that. Uh, I, I don't know how good of and healthy of a marriage that young man and his wife had. But our journey together, as we journey through the Gospel of Luke, we find a story much like the story I told. A group of people that, that were intent on keeping rules. Not just any rules, but not even God's rules per se, although they would have said certainly God's rules. They, they, they would have said, well, yes, God's rules, but here's how we interpret those rules. And so it wasn't so much about following God's rules as much as it was following their rules about how to follow God's rules. And so we find a very, very similar story about uh, Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees and his, their approach of, of, of what it meant to actually follow the, the, the rule, the law, the law that God had given of, uh, to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. 
And so this morning we will look at uh, a story of conflict, a story of understanding and divine authority as we look at this, this time of where Jesus, uh, he ultimately asserts his authority as being the Lord of the Sabbath and therefore has every right to, to know what should and should not be done. So let's open our, let's open our study this morning out of, out of uh, Luke chapter 6 verse 1. And it says, now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields as the disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. So we have a situation that's being established for us, don't we? And that's simply walking through grain fields, which is probably a very common thing. As a matter of fact, we need to understand that it was so common that God in the book of Deuteronomy actually gives regulations for uh, for the outer edges of the acreage where the the grain and the other plants were being planted that they were to leave those for the for the wayfaring travelers and the strangers to the land the sojourners and even their own people who would be traveling and so that they could then glean some from the edges of their their fields and be able to eat be able to make them something and so we have this, this, this practice of walking through the grain fields. However, before we see them walking through the grain fields, what do we see them doing? They're not just walking through grain fields. They're not even just traveling. When are they traveling and where are they traveling? Well, the where really isn't told of us right at this moment. But the when certainly is, and that's on the Sabbath. They are traveling together, walking around on the Sabbath day, which was not unlawful for them to do. It was unlawful for them to conduct, but, but we do need to understand the significance, right? And so when we talk of Sabbath, right, at times we who are in Christ can treat it as if it, it may seem either, either a very foreign concept to us or it, it, it uh, may not be that big of a deal to us. But for the first century Jew, this was a big deal. This is still a big deal for Jewish people everywhere today, right? This is for, for, the, for the observing Jews, this is still a huge deal for them. They observe the Sabbath. They, don't, they, they, they keep very strict rules and laws about the Sabbath. And God had told them to do this. Uh, from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, when is it that God rested? He says he rested on the seventh day. And so the Lord established in his covenant with Israel a, a, a role for this day within their society and a role within this day for religious practice. So the Sabbath was, wasn't just a, a day in which they would go and have some rest and they would, they would kick back and they would just enjoy the day, although it certainly was that. It was, a, it was a day in which they, they would have kicked back and they would have rested, right, after work, working six days. Uh, but it was also a day of worship. It was a day of worship. And so it was a day in which the community as a whole would gather together, not only to rest from their work, but they would, they would gather together in the, in the temple, or the, the tabernacle, depending on the time in, the, of, in which the Jew, Jewish person lived. They would have gathered together, and, or, or later on in Jesus' day, they would have gathered, if not in the temple, then if they were too far out, certainly in the synagogue, they would have gathered together. And there they would have, um, they, they would have uh, from Friday evening at, uh, at uh, dusk, uh, at uh, darkness, till Sunday, Saturday evening at dark, they would have um, enjoyed this rest and worship, right? As a matter of fact, it's so important that in, in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through, 8 through 11, God adds this to the, to the Ten Commandments, to the Decalogue, to the moral law, right? God says, you shall rest, you shall honor the Sabbath day, you shall honor the day after you've worked six days, you will honor that day in which you are to rest. 
It's that important. It's a, it's a day to cease from regular work and a day to focus on spiritual matters. It's a day to, to rest and to welcome in a time of, of, of spiritual instruction and a, a special day to specifically focus on that. So it wasn't like this wasn't happening at other times, right? God had commanded his people that at all times they were to teach their, their children what it meant to follow him when they sat at the tables and when they walked on the way and when they, when they laid down at night. God told them constantly in the book of Deuteronomy to teach their children. But on this day, this was a specifically special day for them to gather together, to cease from regular work, to focus on spiritual matters. And as a matter of fact, Israel was so bad at this, this is, this is one of the reasons why God kicks them out of the land, and it's why they are in, it's why they are in uh, exile for 70 years. A year for, for every year that they didn't observe the, the Sabbath so that the land itself could rest, so that they could that the land itself could rest, because Israel was so bad at this. Now it is interesting to note that after exile, only really one time do we find Nehemiah absolutely going berserk on people because they aren't doing what God told them to do. Matter of fact, he he, he gets so angry that he slams the door and he tells them all to go away and he's going to have them arrested if they don't. And but after that. Israel doesn't seem to struggle with this anymore. The, the nation of Israel itself doesn't seem to struggle with this anymore. They, it, it's interesting that it took God sending them into exile and then bringing them back into the land so that they become very serious about keeping the Sabbath. And they do. They become very serious, so serious as a matter of fact, that they begin to create laws and regulations for how they should keep the Sabbath. They, they want to be so specific that, and I think that this came from probably a very zealous heart that they didn't want to break the Sabbath anymore, that they start creating these rules and regulations which quickly turn into legalism, right? And how do you do this? How do you approach this? You have to approach it exactly like we do. And so... Jesus is walking, and it's funny because Jesus does, and we'll see as, as time goes on, we've already seen in Luke how Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath and, the, and, and other people, and the, the Jews were already, uh, the Jewish leaders were already being very upset. They were very mad. They were very, uh, they, they were, they were very contentious with him because of this, um, and yet Jesus now has walking, is walking with his disciples, and who's walking with him on the Sabbath but none other than the Pharisees? and the scribes, and some of the others. And as they're walking along, they begin to, the disciples begin to get hungry, and they just reach out, pull off some, some stalks, or some, some, uh, some heads of the grain, and they begin to rub it through their hands so that they have in their hand, in their hands, some kernels of wheat. And they begin to pop them in their mouths and begin to eat because they're hungry. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are like, hey, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to do something about this? And so the Pharisees are quite upset with this. It was very, they were very upset with this. And this act, for us, it may seem simple, right? Well, you know, they were hungry. They reached out, pulled off some heads of grain. They, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they rubbed it between their hands and blew a little and blew out the chaff. And then they were left with these kernels and they just began popping them like we would sunflower seeds, right? Or, or another type of a nut. They were just eating them because they were hungry. For us, no big deal. But for the Pharisees and for the religious leaders, oh, this was a very big deal because they were breaking the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. And so tradition as we'll see, and a faulty understanding of the Sabbath 
comes into the hairs of the Lord Jesus Christ to rebuke and to teach. And so uh, he teaches them as a result that what they, are, what they are doing is they are taking their tradition and their understanding and allowing it to take precedence over what the law of God actually says. So they were taking tradition and they were taking their, under, their faulty understanding, right? And they were then saying, okay, so if you're going to keep the Sabbath, you have to do it exactly like we do or you are not a good Jew. You are a breaker of the Sabbath. And if you know anything, to be a breaker of the Sabbath was a massively big deal. And so the disciples, they begin to, to act and they begin, because they're hungry, they begin to say, well, there's some crane here, let's go ahead and do this. And so the disciples' physical need and their act of plucking the grain really, really isn't a big deal. Jesus says nothing to them about it to the point that the Pharisees begin to grumble and begin to complain and begin to say, Jesus, why aren't you saying anything? These guys, they are breaking the Sabbath. I mean, for us, again, it may seem rather mundane, right? But in the context in which they exist, it highlights the reality that for the religious observance here, the tradition that they were, uh, they were lifting up, the tradition took precedence over a real need. And it's funny how we can do this sometimes, right? We can allow physical observances of traditions to, at times, overwhelm our, uh, the, what, the, what, what God's word actually says. We can allow observances of, or traditions or, or rules and regulations to actually become law when they're not law. It's simply our way of doing something. And as a result, this is what happened to the Pharisees. The Pharisees' rules and regulations and their ideas of how to keep, the, keep this law had taken precedence over a need of the disciples, which was they were legitimately hungry. They were walking. They, they, with Jesus, they had seen lots of people, lots of crowds. Uh, uh, and so at this moment in time, they were walking together and they were, they were hungry. So they said, well, let's grab something to eat. But the Pharisees were so stuck on their tradition, so stuck on their way of doing things that they could not see that they were wrong. They were not wrong for wanting to honor the law of God. They were not wrong for wanting to keep the law of God. They were not, none of that was wrong. But their tradition and their way of observing it was completely wrong and missed the point of God even giving the law. And so because of that, they allowed their tradition to usurp what God had actually said. Why? Because instead of saying to these men who had had nothing to eat and were hungry and thought, well, you know what, until we can get someplace, I'll just go ahead and grab some of these and, and, and pop them in my mouth to, to settle my stomach down a little bit from keeping it from growling. Uh, in, instead of seeing and saying, hey, you know what, uh, uh, you know, they're not, they're not taking it down to the threshing floor and they're not beating it out there and they're not going through the whole big process and they're not making money off of it and they're not observing, you know, they're not, they're not working like they, like they would do on, the, on a normal day and all of that. They're just simply taking a little bit of heads uh, full of grain and rubbing it together and blowing on it to get the chaff away and then popping it into their mouth. Instead of seeing that in a, in a gracious, loving way, they were bent on their tradition. You must do it our way. You must do it the way we say to do it or you're wrong. And the fact is they were wrong. 
The only thing God had said was keep the Sabbath. That's all he said. Rest and worship together. That's all he said. How that looks and what that looks like, God never gave a commandment. He said, worship together, rest together, and do this as a community together and observe this together. But the hows and the whos and the whats and the whens and how far you're allowed to travel and, 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 and were you allowed to pick heads of grain and all that. Jesus says they were getting caught up in the minutia and losing the forest for the trees. They were missing the forest for the trees. The Pharisees had a strict interpretation here of how to do it and what to do it and traditions and ways. And they were completely uncompromising. And look, tradition in and of itself isn't bad, right? But tradition, when it has been allowed to become so inflexible and so unflexible and so hardened that it becomes brittle if you don't keep it, is not good. It's not good. And their approach to the Sabbath was problematic, the Pharisees. Because there was no love whatsoever in their rules. There was no love whatsoever in their regulations. There was no place for grace. There was only, you must do it this way, period. And if you don't, you are sinning. Now to be sure, if the Jew, if, if the, if the, uh, the disciples of Jesus had started working the field and started working like they would on any other day, they would have been wrong. But that's not what they're doing. And the approach to the Sabbath, really for the, for the Pharisees and the, the, the religious leaders, really is emblematic of a, of a bigger problem. It really is a, it's a, it's a, it's a bigger issue. Like, it's, like you know, sometimes you'll, you'll see a problem in, at your work and, and then you try to tell your boss, hey, look, th- this isn't just a problem here. Th- th- there's something systemic. There's something wrong all the way through this. Right? Th- it, may be, it may be expressing itself here, but ultimately the picture is the, the larger systemic problem. There's a larger issue at hand. And if, if we would just fix that, we wouldn't have this problem. You can fix the machine over and over and over again, but if you were just to fix the whole problem, you wouldn't be having this problem with this machine. And that's the way the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees were. They, their, 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 their focus on keeping the Sabbath had become such a ritual and a, or, and, a, and a tradition, and the way to do that had become so ingrained in them that for someone to come along and say, you know, that's not what God meant when he said to keep the Sabbath, that it becomes an outrageous way of thinking to them. So maybe, again, maybe another example would be helpful, okay? So let's, let's say, let's, let's call the guy Jeff. I'll just call him Jeff. Jeff's been, Jeff's been working all night. Jeff's pulled a 12 at the factory, and he smells like sweat and like factory. And Jeff comes walking in here on a Sunday morning, not dressed in his Sunday best, and dressed, but he wants to come to worship together, and he wants to come and worship with us, and, and, and he's he, he smelling like sweat and dirty hands and dirty clothes, and he comes in and he walks in and he sits down. Would any one of us ever 
dare to open our mouth to say, hey, buddy, you need to go home and get cleaned up first before you come to this church. Well, let me say this. God forgive you if that would be your response because you have more in line with the Pharisees than you do Jesus. Somebody pulling a 12, walks in off the street, wants to worship with us, doesn't look the best, doesn't act the best, maybe perhaps doesn't even, has never even been here before. If our first response is go clean up before you come in here, we've lost the heart of the gospel. We've lost the heart of the gospel. And but this was the Pharisees. They didn't, they, they, they didn't even so care much so much about keeping the law as they did doing it their way. They didn't keep care so much about keeping the law as they did keeping it their way. And so Jesus responds here in verses 3 and 4, doesn't he? And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, the master storyteller in himself, he employs a story. He tells a story, but he tells a historical story. What story does he appeal to? He appeals to David. Doesn't he? He appeals to, to David. And what happens when David was running for his life from Saul, and he, a few, he had a few men with him, and they were, they were running for their lives. They didn't think of anything. They, they, the only thing they cared about was staying alive. And they ran. And where did they go? They ran to the priest, and they said, what do you have? And the priest said, oh, I've got some showbread, and, and you can have it if, as long as your young men have kept themselves from sexual immorality. He says, absolutely. And then Jesus says something very interesting here, doesn't he, in verses 3 and 4. He says, but Jesus answering them said, have you not read yet read this that David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and took and ate of the showbread and also gave some to those with him which were not lawful to eat, but it's only for the priests. Why would Jesus tell this story? Why would Jesus appeal to this story? Why would he do it? Why would he do it? Well, because it proves a point, doesn't it? That principle takes precedence over tradition. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them, and he'll say this at, the very, at, at chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, when he says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. We'll talk more about what that means here in just a moment. But what he says here is that Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, all you religious guys, yeah, you 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 want to keep the the law and the rule that I have given that that God gave us, that God gave you, that I gave you. But you need to understand that that you have you have twisted and perverted what I, what God has said, what I have said, to the point that you have lost the entire reasoning behind why it was given in the first place. Why was it given in the first place? Why was it so important that it was even being given down into the uh, into the um, in, into the the moral law why, in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue? Why, why did God so treasure this? Well, Jesus doesn't say it here, but he will go on to say it in another encounter in another gospel. He will say, "The Sabbath was not created for man." but man for the Sabbath. 
It's not about keeping rules and regulations and traditions or following my specific interpretations on how to do that. It's simply about following the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to define what that looks like, what that means for me, what that means for you, what that means for us as a, as a family or uh, means for you as a family or us as a congregation or as a church. What, is that, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? Because Jesus is right, it wasn't lawful for David and his men to eat, because it was only lawful for the priests, and yet God did, not con- God did not condemn him for it, as we learned here with Jesus, and God didn't even, didn't even judge him for it. He didn't judge the priest for doing it. Why? Because God's king was in need, and God said, let principle take precedence over tradition. Now, God didn't break the law. But rather what God is expressing, what Jesus is expressing here, is that the spirit of the law is just as important as what the law states. What is the meaning behind the law is as important as the law itself. And this is what the Pharisees didn't understand. This is what the Pharisees couldn't understand. They couldn't understand that the, the meaning behind it, the spirit behind even God even giving the law was just as important as what the law said and should have been taken into account as it was here, as it was here with David and as it was here with the, with the disciples. And, and so Jesus uses this example to challenge the Pharisees' interpretation of what it even means to keep the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't arguing you should go around working on the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't arguing breaking, for breaking the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't even expanding it and saying, well, you know what, that was Old Testament, so this, I'm here now, and so this is the New Testament. Jesus is taking something in the, in the Old Testament, bringing it forward and saying, you know what, this is not wrong in keeping it, but make sure in keeping it that you're also keeping the spirit of it that is behind it. The meaning for which it was given as well as what it says. This is what he means when he says that I, the Son of Man, am the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, he's asserting authority here, right? He's saying, listen, the reason I am saying this to you is because I'm the one who wrote the law and I know what this means. I wrote it. I gave it. I'm the one who knows the spirit behind it. Therefore, you're wrong. Which I think really does open up a question, maybe a larger question. I don't know if we really have time to really delve into it. But then what does that mean for how we should apply Old Testament law to, to, to the New Testament. Um, I mean, after all, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says this, to them, that's the old covenant, um, the old covenant uh, uh, Israel was also given sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state to that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity, and that's the important word here, only being of modern usage. So here's why we want to follow Jesus' example in faithfully applying the moral principles found in the Old Testament law that's even for us today. Because there's a lot of people out there who say, well, the Old Testament really doesn't have any law. It doesn't really have anything meaningful for us that we should only focus on the New Testament. And if it's not repeated in the New Testament, well, then we don't have to worry about anything. But that's, that's not what God's Word says. God's Word actually says that the things that have happened to them in, in, in 2 Corinthians, the things that happened to those who have gone before us was for our good and so that we would learn from them. And so what, what, how, do we, how do we apply the teachings of the Old Testament then and bring them forward in a way that is meaningful to us? 
without violating the, the, the principle. Well, I would say first, we need to understand that what, however we apply some of the laws that we may find that are strange, they ultimately must find their grounding in the moral law. That is that, that the, the moral laws of the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments, they are continuing to be binding. And as a result, they embody timeless and universal truths that are applicable to all of us. And that while the civil and ceremonial laws are distinct only for the nation of Israel, they still have meaning for us insofar as they teach us about God's holiness and God's righteousness. And that as a result, while we aren't called to stop eating catfish and all this other stuff like the dietary restrictions of the Jews, we are called to realize that everything we do in our eating and our drinking and everything else is to be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, for the glory of God. And so even the Old Testament dietary restrictions that we are no longer bound to and the penalties that we may not be bound to by the crimes committed still teach us something. Because even in the Old Covenant, the laws that were given for thievery and everything else, while we may not apply those directly right to, to today's standards, we still say, well, guess what? Stealing is still wrong. God says it's wrong. We should not do it as Christians. And those who are caught stealing should, in fact, pay back what they've stolen. And so we find the general equity application in all of this, which, which involves, right, we, we understand the moral and ethical principles behind the laws given, and then we apply them appropriately as, as, we, as we walk through our daily lives. We know that a murderer should be put to death, which is why Christians, in a good conscience, should be able to, uh, should be able to support capital punishment. The rulers should bear the sword applicably. When God himself even connected this in the beginning in the, in, with, his, with Noah's covenant. He says, the one, by man's blood, the one who sheds man's blood, whether animal or human, is to be put to death. There's nothing conflicting there. There's nothing conflicting there. But in all of this, we, we find this, this idea of the fact that we, we must not allow our traditions to usurp the spirit of the law that's given. And that's why Jesus ends up appealing to mercy and necessity by giving this example of David. He challenges their mindset. He calls them to interpret and to understand that they are wrong in their interpretation and they need to, they need to come to a new and better understanding and so Jesus' appeal to David here is a signal, it's a call to correctly understanding and correctly applying the law of God to our lives. And honestly, this, this really is a, a resounding, continual message that I could say, well, Jesus said it, but it even goes back to the old covenant under, under which Samuel convicts Saul. He says, what? I, I, I require obedience rather than sacrifice. And, and Jesus calls us to, to merciful obedience, not to sacrifice. We, we must not emphasize, emphasize the teaching of Scripture to the point that the spirit behind it is, in fact, violated. Now, again, we're, we're not talking about the gospel or, or things that, that are absolutely uncompromisable and, and things that are, that are absolutely uh, excusing sin or anything like that. We're not, talking, we're not talking about that. What we are talking about, and we're not talking about finding loopholes either, 
But we're talking about applying Scripture in a consistent way that is honoring to God in every sense of that word. And this is why Jesus will go on to say that he has the authority to teach them and to rebuke them because they're wrong. Because he appeals to a title here. And let me say this very clear here in verse 5. He calls himself the Son of Man. By the way, do you know Jesus' favorite title, or the, the favorite title of Jesus outside of himself for apply, to, in speaking of Jesus is the Son of God? That's the, that's the favorite title of, of New Testament writers, the Son of God. But when Jesus speaks of himself, do you know his favorite title of himself? It is not Son of God. It is Son of Man. Why? Well, let me say this real quick. In, it, it is mentioned, the Son of Man is given to us approximately, you know, so give or take, approximately 81 times across the four Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses it 30 times. In the Gospel of Luke or Mark, Jesus uh, applies it 14 times to himself. In the Gospel of Luke, he applies it 25 times to himself. And in the, the Gospel of John, it is applied 12 times to himself. And the significance of all of this is that he is directly appealing to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it is said that one like the Son of Man is given dominion and authority, that he comes to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, and he is given dominion and authority. But this only occurs after Daniel chapter 2, where, da- where Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision of a, of, of a, of a, of a, of a statue, but that's not what's significant. Daniel then talks about the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Also, he saw a a stone that was not cut out with human hands that was then thrown down to the earth and it crashes into those kingdoms, destroys it, and then this thing becomes, this stone becomes a giant mountain that fills the entire earth. Meaning that the same Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is the same one who would be cut out by non-human hands and cast into the earth to take over and to take control of all of the kingdoms of man. And so Jesus, by directly appealing to this title, is saying, I'm the fulfillment of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. I have come so that my kingdom might fill the world and might take over the kingdoms of this nation so that in Revelation it might be said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and King. And then it might be said of Jesus that I am the Son of Man who has been given by the Ancient of Days the authority over every tribe and ruler and tongue and kingdom. I am, in other words, the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And as the Messiah, you have this wrong, and I'm telling you it's wrong. So let me apply this for us quickly, and then we're gone. First, I think as we, as, we, as we approach any of this as Christians, we need to, we need to have a, and, and, and be okay with having a, a deeper understanding of Scripture. We need to know the Scriptures. We need to love Scripture. We don't have to know all the ins and the outs and the, the, the titles, the names that theologians give to things. We just need to know Scripture. And we need, to, we need to have our minds attuned to the Word of God. After all, remember, Jesus tells us that He, he is truth. He is truth. And he demonstrated that the spirit behind what is said in the word of God is meant 
as important and as as important as what is stated. And so we need to know the law. We need to unearth the law of God. We need to understand the word of God. We need to understand so that we, we, are, we are open, perhaps if we've misinterpreted something to be corrected, or, or even perhaps if we didn't mis- misinterpret it, but we've misapplied it, that we can have our hearts directed and appropriately apply Scripture. And again, we're not talking about finding loopholes for us to be able to sin or to welcome in people who are living adulterous and wicked and evil lifestyles or anything like that. That's not, that's not the point of any of this. But the point of this is to ask the question, has perhaps tradition in our lives or our hearts, has it become a point of stumbling for us that we think we know what the Bible says, but we actually don't know? And to, in, re, to re-study those things to figure out that we, whether or not we do know. I would say this, number two, prioritize pleasing God over pleasing people. Jesus doesn't ever please the Pharisees, right? I don't, I don't think anybody has to, has to question that. Does Jesus please the Pharisees? The answer to that pretty quick is, nope. Jesus never pleases the Pharisees. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. Paul, Paul mentions in Galatians 1.10 that, that one should question whether or not they are seeking God's approval of people. And that should be our question. Are we approving a conscience that is pure before God or a conscience that is captive and bound by those around us who we want to please? Romans 14.4 suggests that we are ultimately accountable to God, not to people. We're going to stand before God, not people one day. So are we focused on pleasing God in our lives, personally, corporately, in every sense of that word? Or are we, uh, or are we focused on getting, getting along and being swayed by human laws and regulations and rules? And let me say this to you, Christian. Defend your freedom in Christ. Defend your freedom in Christ. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Do not let anyone bind your conscience when God's word has not bound you. You are not called to let other people bind your conscience. You let God's word bind your conscience. You be like Martin Luther that said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I I cannot recant. God help me. Let your conscience be bound to what the scriptures state, not what people in the circles that you run in state. You stand for truth and Christ and your freedom in Christ. And do not use that as an excuse, Paul says, for sin or wickedness. But you do not let anyone bind your conscience when God's word has not said anything. Because that has more in line with being with the Pharisees than it does with being a champion of the grace of God and the freedom that is granted to us in Christ. Do not let anyone bind your conscience when God has not bound your conscience in his clear and impeccable teachings of his clear and impeccable word. You let God's word guide you. You make sure God's word is directing you. You don't let anyone tell you the way it should be. You let God tell you the way it is. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your blessings would rest upon your people. We pray that you would help us to honor you and to glorify you and to serve you. 
We pray that we would be a blessing to those around us as we've sung this morning, we'd be a channel of blessing. God, we pray that your name would be exalted and glorified, that we would be a champion of the freedom you've granted us in Christ, and that we would not bind our consciences to those who have no authority over us, but rather the only authority we have over us and in us is Christ. So help Christ be the law. Let Christ be who we stand for and follow and be the one to whom our consciences are beholden to. Let us follow Christ and him alone. Let us look to Christ and him alone in all things. We pray that your blessings would rest upon this, your people. Grant us the assurance of your pardon through Christ that is ours only through Christ. And grant us the, uh, the, the assurance and the courage to stand when Christ has said what he has said without apology, clearly and boldly preaching and teaching the word of God and clearly believing the word of God in our lives. Let us follow Christ in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.